a war. And the casualties could be your hearts and souls. Thank you, Mr. Dalton. Armies of academics going forward, measuring poetry. No, we will not have that here. No more, Mr. J. Evans Bridget. Now, my class, you will learn to think for yourselves again. You will learn to savor words and language. No matter what anybody tells you, words and ideas can change the world. Hey, what's up, everybody? This is Dave. Thanks for joining Bob and I for our podcast, Thriving in Dystopia. And even though we always try and be professionals, sometimes we swear. So just know that going in. Good to have you back on the sound studio, Bob. Dave, you never let me out of here. I've been in here for like eight months. (laughs) Yeah, I, I feel like it's been far too long seeing you with... Uh, just with behind the screen, <laughs> this veneer, two two dimensional man. Yeah. Um. Wow. So, do you know when the last episode we re- re- we recorded was, Bob? I, uh, you know, I think it was about February twenty eighth ish, around okay. that time. Yeah. Do you want to give a little overview of what Thriving in Dystopia is? Yeah. For our new time listeners and our listeners who haven't tuned in in a while, um, this is a podcast brought to you by Bob and Dave Maisler. Also known as Dave Peachtree. Oh, yeah. Dave. For course credit. (laughs) That's right. Sorry, you didn't let me get to it. That was his middle name. Dave Maisler Peachtree. Right. Couple of brothers. That's right. And we created this podcast in the, the dog days of the... 2020 part of the pandemic, you know, and all those elements are still valid and with us. So we're still in this dystopia, but we're looking to find ways of to to thrive in it and beyond it. So that means thinking through what are what are the ways that we can connect with each other? What are ideas that are out there that are, you know, maybe people haven't heard of that we can develop a little bit? Um, what kind of future do we want to live in developing those kinds of um, imaginations? And, and then there's some episodes that are like, what are we struggling with in our lives? And can we talk about that? So, yeah, I think we've had about eight seasons with different um, overall themes. Um, one of our themes was um, getting into the, remember, like being brave or like going, doing the things that, you were like reluctant to do. I remember that was one of my favorite seasons. Mm, that was a good um, season. Yeah. And we've had episodes like, um, well, one was when we recounted the, like the philosophies and politics of the Zapatistas and talked about going to Chiapas the time we spent down there ourselves. Sure. Yeah. Um, we've had some like media episodes where we've looked at like movies and music that we love um, we've had some like, friends sports. On. sports as well. Yeah. Had some great like co-hosts, uh, Dave Harris, Dan Cantrick, Katie Gillespie, Katie Gillespie. Uh, Julie Peachtree. Um, so yeah, th- that's a little primer for you, Dave. Um, do you have any other things to add on that? I think my, if I'm going to just from the top of my dome piece, if I go back in time and I think of 
two of my favorite episodes. We did a really good episode on the police system. I think that might have been episode like five, six, seven, somewhere in the earlies. That was where we really hit our our running running stride a little bit. Yep. And it it was sort of right during like the George Floyd protests and like the height of it, May, June, July of 2020. Um, and there was another good one on grief that I really appreciated. And oh, there is a really for all the teachers out there, if you want a teaching related episode, one that is sticking out to me is we I think it was at that about a year ago when um, we were both going back into teacher mode and we sort of broke down sort of different teaching methodologies that we've practiced with social justice in the classroom. Do you remember those that two part series, Bob? I do. Yeah. And I'm trying to look in our archive where that might be, but I'm not exactly finding it, but yeah, um, we'll get you there. It's, it's there. It is. There. <laughs> yeah. I think it's in the thirties or something. Um, and it has something to do. You talked to, cause I talked about, uh, uh, restorative circles, but you went to the next like restorative justice. You went to the next level. I do remember that into like transformative justice ideas. Yeah. Wow. That was, a, that was a classic. Um, yeah. And, you know, this has just been a great way for us to connect with each other over the years. And it feels good to dust off the old microphones and get us together again. We've had a good summer seeing each other. I was just in Santa Cruz visiting you, Bob. Absolutely. Yeah. Dave, we, you came out for my sort of, uh, family public uh, wedding. And yeah. that was amazing to have you out here for that. Just so, so grateful for you and other folks who supported us. And um, yeah, that was a big moment. And just also, you haven't been out here in so, so long. Who knows, maybe 2018 or something like that. So it was great to get you to uh, Verve Coffee after all these years. Yes. I mean, highlights. Real highlights. Yeah. Among other things, just, yeah, what a beautiful place. And to get on an airplane again is always a ridiculous moment, especially these days, but um, kind of an act of leap of faith, as it were. Yeah. So today we're, you know, not everyone knows this, but I've gone back to grad school, gone back to the old school. And I am, I've taken a class this summer. And the class title is um, sort of the class title is all about disciplinary literacy. And I'm going to break down disciplinary literacy for you today, Bob, and some of the takeaways that I've gotten from that class and sort of give everyone else a little primer into this world. And part of the reason, I mean, I saw the word podcast and I feel like a podcaster, but I also thought it'd be kind of nice because you are a college professor um, adjunct as it is, and you teach at a few universities out there. Um, and I don't know, I was just curious to see if what, what I talk about in the elementary school level and with disciplinary literacy, if it seems like it's going to strike a chord with you in any ways, or like, I doubt you're going to take any, like, there's not going to be any real takeaways for you and your teaching methodology, but it might be interesting to see where I'm coming from. Make sense? Yeah, really excited about this. I have some 
like uh, like thoughts about where this might or could go, but it really have not much of any idea. So I'm excited to hear where you take us and then, um, yeah, I might have some follow-up questions or like things like that. And um, yeah, my background is in social psychology and teaching in the realm of social justice as well. So love to see if there's any connection into those those worlds of teaching as well. So yeah, ready when you are, D. So I think, Bob, what I want to do is I just want to give you a little overview of what disciplinary literacy is in my my view. And to do that, you kind of got to know what content area literacy is. It's this idea that as an elementary school teacher, like, as we all know, the biggest thing that you're trying to get out of elementary school is to teach kids how to read. Like you go in not knowing how to read and you come out like being able to basically read most anything. That's the idea behind elementary school as well as to like, I mean, there's a million other things, but that's like one of the the huge goals as any, any elementary school teacher knows that we are just getting these kids into the books, um, which is kind of a huge undertaking. Um, But the idea behind content area literacy is that you teach, um, you don't teach the, I, uh, let me try and explain this better. So you're teaching these big, broad strategies that can be applied to any, um, any discipline. For instance, the idea of being able to identify key details is, and you do that in whether it's a science or math or a book that you're reading, you're supposed to be able to identify key details and then talk about what the main idea is based on the evidence that you found, right? Um, And you, as an elementary school teacher, this is the way we've been teaching for the past like 20-ish years. And um, disciplinary literacy is this idea that we are not teaching these big broad brushstrokes. What we're trying to do is we're trying to dissect each different con, um, each different each different discipline, and those four disciplines are ELA or English language arts, science, math, and social studies. And rather than teaching the broad strokes, we're teaching what it means to be a mathematician. What does a mathematician do? What do they, how do they read? What is the vocab that's associated with this? And um, it's sort of like taking off your, your, you're like putting on different personas for each one of these. And there are, of course, like overlaying applications, right? If you're able to understand what are called tier two words, like the word explain or the word, um, even like, a word like syllabus is um, like a tier two word, right? But what we're trying to do is get into this this tier three vocabulary where we're teaching these very specific vocab terms, terms that are leading to a specific idea of what it means to be each one of these disciplines. And this is how it's been taught in middle school and high school over the past few years. Does that give you a, a decent idea of what these two literacies are? Yeah, it does. Yeah. Yeah. I- like content literacy, very general strategies and disciplinary literacy, more specific um, ways of reading and writing within those four areas that you talked about. Yeah, exactly. 
And I'm, I think what I want to do is I kind of want to get into like my main takeaways from each one of those contents. And I feel like for me as a teacher, like action items are always the best. I don't really want to live in the theory for too long. I want to get into like, okay, so what can I do? Like, that's great. It sounds like a nice idea and maybe you're sold on it or not, but like to even get sold on it, you have to understand how to, how to teach this, how to be into the action. Um, does that feel okay? Yeah, definitely. Sweet. So I'm going to start off. Well, I also need to say too, that one of my, this class has been pretty remarkable for me. Um, I feel like the, I was able to take away so much content from this and I've changed a lot of my lessons plans over the coming weeks, over the coming year, and I'm able to look at it with a critical lens. Um, and yeah, that's not, that's kind of unusual, I think, for classes in general or professional development or what have you. This was a class that was like full of action items, full of resources, full of like different ideas of that we can put into action. So I think you know, as we break down each section, I'm going to need to give you some action items of what to do. Um, do you have a subject you want to start with, Bob? Let's start with ESL. Um, E-L-A. Is that what you want? That's what I meant. Yeah, yeah. Uh, sure. Well, I think for you, one of the things that you need to know for ELA is like, um, have you heard of culturally culturally responsive text? Do you know what that means? Yeah, I think so. Those are like texts that are um, much more consistent, like not just in English or U.S. American, but um, yeah, for example, maybe having more Spanish or history of areas of Latin America. Is that is that right? Yeah. Yeah. I think that that's a pretty good understanding of it. And I, this class was not a culturally responsive text class, but it is really important, especially for ELA to understand. I mean, for every subject that you're supposed to be understanding the culture of your classroom. And I mean, for us in the West, Colorado, California, it's like super important to know that like Latinx culture is a real thing. And, you know, we need to be reading texts that are a little bit more appropriate with that. For instance, it's it's great or it's fine to be reading about Little Red Riding Hood or it's like, sure, it's important to think about George Washington every now and then, but that just can't be what every text is about. You can't be reading over and over again these texts that are like praising white men that are pushing us towards this cultural narrative that is not responsive to the students that are in your room. And it's an, it's a way like you need to celebrate not just the cultures in your room, not just the um, mainstream culture of like uh, white dominance in this country, but you need to be like expanding the idea. So for instance, my classroom is, you know, about 70% Latinx, um, so that means that I need to be uh, approaching my texts with, I need to be looking at my curriculum like critically and being like, yeah, I don't think I need to have like 
my, uh, like for instance, in my curriculum, I have a text where uh, the Tom's Shoe Company, um, it's like this white guy who makes shoes and sends shoes to Africa. And it's, you know, it's just an informational text piece, but it is like 100% um, pushing the narrative of white savior forward, right? And that doesn't need to be what my, and if the whole idea is like, this is about um, informational text where you're like going to be reading about something that's happening in the world and sort of breaking it down as opposed to like a narrative text. Um, yeah. Like that doesn't need to be what the tech, what my informational text is about, you know? Um, and so I've replaced a text like that with a text, um, like la last year we took that out and we replaced it with a text called separate is never equal, which is about Sylvia Mendez. And she is a Californian girl who, I, I believe this is like, this is pre Brown versus the board of education, but she was pushed out of the school system in California. And it, this family like went to battle over like getting her a fair education and justice. And like that to me is a much more appropriate text. It's like, her family, the Mendez family is like fighting and it's like showing that like, it's talking a lot about like the power that we have, like grassroots organization. It's also like talking about bottom up as opposed to top down. And um, like, it doesn't push forward green capitalism in any way. Does that make sense? Yeah, it does. I, I can see how that's like culturally responsive to your class and this moment in history. Yeah, exactly. Um, so with disciplinary literacy, you have to be culturally responsive. You, and then you're also, the idea is you're becoming like a liter, like a, like you're analyzing these texts. And the other idea is you're not just going to give one viewpoint because that is never, um, and this, this goes across the board for, um, like every discipline, you're never just going to give one information. Like you have to give more than multiple viewpoints, multiple um, things for students to analyze. And this is called like multimodal text. So you have like a, a lot of different texts for them to compare the students and pushing them to be like, okay, how can I analyze this text? How is this going to compare? Um, so for instance, if we take that book separate is never equal and we can compare it to another book, uh, let's just go with Dreamers, which is about, um, or Dreamers is a book about like becoming, like it's all about DACA, right? And then there's another book called El, El Viaje, which is like my journey from Mexico and it's about the immigration's journey, right? So you have these three texts and you're going to compare these three. You're going to give the students a chance to like have discourse about these three different texts. Um, and the other key point that we need to like start bringing up now and we'll get into it a little bit more in math and science and social studies is like, it's not just about reading like literacy, especially um, in this day and age, the digital world is not just going to be like reading a book. Right. So um, in the unit that I designed, so like the unit that I designed, um, for this disciplinary literacy, it's a th it's a six week long unit that's immigration and family heritage is the like the themes of the unit and 
we are going to be taking these stories that we're reading, but we're also going to be like exploring different websites. Like PB, PBS has this great website where they interviewed like, um, I think it's 12 kids from 12 different countries and they tell their story about immigration to the United States. And so you're getting it from a lot of different angles, right? You're not just like seeing it. Um, you're not just seeing one story. You're not just like talking about that one story and analyzing the vocab there. You're making these broader units that are designed to be responsive to the classroom, which, you know, for my classroom, immigration is like a key unit. And we're study- we're doing this unit during um, what's called Hispanic Heritage Month, September 15th through uh, October 15th. And then we're going to be um, like exploring so many different ways of looking at these texts and like the internet where I signed up for ancestry.com has a school package. And yeah, so we're going to be diving deep into like exploring what our roots are and what does that mean and how does that make a classroom community? Um, Yeah. So that's, that's kind of the ELA view of disciplinary literacy. And I think it's a really important thought to have that culturally responsive text and thinking about what your classroom needs. Does that make sense? Yeah, it definitely does. Gives us some good headers. We have the um, focus on cultural uh, responsive texts. Um, We have the idea of, um, I guess you talked about like multiple multimodal Mm -hmm. perspectives um, and there's a middle one. I forgot the middle one. Um, it might've been the idea of like, Hmm, I don't know what the middle one was, but that's okay. We can go back and I'm sure our, our listeners will remember it. Hold on, yeah, we might, it, you know, pick it up in one of the next ones. Yeah. But that, that all makes sense. That's great. Yeah. Um, maybe I'll let you talk about one of the other, um, domains uh, or disciplines that you yeah. brought up earlier. Sweet. Yeah, I guess this one I'm curious about. I want to do social studies because you are a social psychologist. Um, it's it's a bit different, right? But you are like, you're one of the practicing people that is practicing this discipline. And um, the big takeaway from this is this idea of primary sources. So like, uh, like a historian or a geographer, their idea is not going to be secondary sources. And a lot of what like my curriculum is, is told, has been told is like, let's read about, and, and this is pretty big when you think about like what's happening in Florida, um, where they're like getting rid of a lot of text or they're like making you choose which textbook you're, you're teaching. Right. It's like, it's silencing the voices. Right. So what I love about teaching social studies is we still have this idea of culturally responsive, right? So like your unit should be based around what the kids need or what they want to get out of it as well as your standards, but um, you're doing primary sources. So as opposed to like reading, like my curriculum says, you're supposed to like read about uh, the mining practices of Colorado in the 18, uh, the 1850s and the Colorado gold rush. 
So like one of my things that I'm supposed to do is like teach them about the gold, teach my students about the gold rush. And the way that I'm supposed to do it is have them read a textbook, which is just like exhausting and boring. Um, but what a disciplinary literacy is telling us to do is like, let's get out of that mind frame of reading secondary sources, reading what some like white guy from Texas or Florida wants us to read about these people and um, get the primary sources up. So like there's this great resource um, through the Library of Congress, which is a like a it just compiles a bunch of different resources, right? So for my immigration unit, I'll be also pushing that into social studies and we're gonna be like going in depth into like looking at what are, like let's look at some pictures. Let's compare a picture um, of an immigrant then to now. And you're, you're really not telling kids what to think. You're really not trying to put qual- qualifiers in front of it. You're just giving them some, you're guiding the discussion and you're putting primary sources in front of them, whether it's a, a book from the, you know, 1900s that talks about like, uh, like housework as a way to like, um, like tame the, the American Indian. This is one of the things that was on the Library of Congress, which is just incredible housework to tame the Native American. And it's just like, are you kidding me? But like, there's a lot of power in like looking at what, like, like what does that say about our country if this is a book that's getting published, right? Like, what does that say when you see, when you hear the voices of, you know, uh, Cesar Chavez and a rally that's been happening, you know, um, or seeing and like, you know, going to these, like looking at our own primary sources, our parents, right? And pushing into that. Um, yeah, so I guess really like any action items like that I would recommend for like teaching, uh, disciplinary literacy for social studies is like get away from secondary sources and textbooks and get into this like action items where you can like, you know, put a map up of 1850s United States. What does it look like compared to 1860s compared to the 1900s? And like have students reflect and become historians, geographers, and look at what what they can do with their critical thinking lens because it doesn't do them any good to memorize facts, right? Like if you're going to be sitting there telling them like, great, this is the president, like even saying like this is the mayor of Fort Collins, does that help? Like, does that help them become more engaged in civics to know, to be, to memorize that there is a mayor, what the mayor does? Like, for me, it's way more important to put these actions into practice, right? So last year to teach civics, I, you know, I formed a class government and, you know, one of the students became the governor of my classroom and we formed a legislative branch and we formed a judicial branch and we... We put all those things because it's never enough to just like memorize facts and details. Yeah. So I'm also curious to hear, Bob, like, does that feel different from your elementary school days? Or do you even remember social studies in elementary school? Um, not really, but 
Um, I'm trying to remember. We had a unit on Colorado, um, and I I could see that maybe being like what you're saying. I feel like what could be more long lasting mm. if you like delve into the primary sources rather than a focus just on secondary sources because you can get to something that's really specific and could really connect like maybe going to Mesa Verde and going to the cave dwellings and being in the quake cave dwellings and like that being a primary source rather than reading about it in a textbook. Um, Yeah. Right. Like how how powerful is that? And you can't always go on field trips, but I, you know, one of our goals, my teaching team's goals this year is to try and get out there and go on. We're trying to go on four field trips this year, which is a big increase from one last year. Yeah. 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 Even if it is, yeah, not a field trip, but like, uh, like a map from the era or like you're saying, like an advertisement of, or like, uh, oh, yeah, a document around yeah. subordination of indigenous people through the lens of, yeah, like domestic work yeah that's also very powerful like i i'm very curious if like fourth graders can understand that um or if that has to wait till like high school or something but yeah um i could see there being equivalents for like developmentally equivalent for fourth graders things like that so and i think that would be powerful does it what is it a, a full step away from textbooks would it be like not using textbooks anymore Um, I think the textbooks that we will use rather than putting it into the social studies, trying to find, um, I mean, yeah, I guess the upshot is yes, but we will have some of that, um, put into our shared reading in ELA. So we'll read a book this year called Bear Dancer, which is a book, uh, that talks about, uh, it's written from, uh, a woman, her name is Elk Girl, and she lived in Fort Collins, and it's like her experience in Fort Collins, which is like kind of powerful as opposed to just like, you know, talking about like how the Cheyenne, Arapaho, and Ute peoples were pushed out of their lands, put put onto, you know, reservations and fenced in and taken away from where they their ancestral homes, you know. It's a way more powerful to hear about it through her her lens. You know what I mean? And like you yeah, said, those are yeah. like the long lasting effects. Um, yeah, absolutely. You're yeah. and it could really like stay with the students. Yeah, that's great. I love it. Yeah, this does resonate for like more powerful, long lasting learning. Um, yeah, and you know, coming towards towards the end of our podcast, I know there's two more disciplinary areas um do you want to get into them or how do you want to think about using uh the rest of our time here yeah i think we'll get into them just a little bit i'm just gonna sort of combine math and science into the same idea and um i just really want to just encourage teachers and newbies to think about what it means to be these people you know like what does it mean to be a scientist what does a mathematician do like what is the basis of science Uh, The basis of science is not like these driving questions. It's not to be, um, not to like answer 
how does a finger work? Because that doesn't really matter, right? Like, I mean, yes, it matters. And now we, we as like humans understand like ligaments and muscles and bones and structures, which is like one of my curriculums that I have to teach. But it's like, how do we, how do we like switch that mind frame to be like, let's, what does a scientist do? A scientist in, in essence is someone that asks questions, goes through like research methodology and, you know, finds the best possible answer. Like you as a social psychologist, that's what you do, right? You're trying to understand the, the mind frame of like, you're trying to understand the science of people, right? And you're asking these research questions and then you're like using your tools to answer that. Right. And that's what we need to teach as a po and it needs to be so hands-on like science a hundred percent needs to be hands-on and you can always like implement it with like reading. Um, and we in elementary school do way too much narrative reading was one of the big takeaways for me um, as opposed to reading informational things. So we can like, have our science and our, like our small group reading be about, um, informational texts. Um, and you know, same for math, like a math mathematician are, are problem solvers. You know, we have like the computer that we're sitting on right now and our cell phones, like these little magical rectangles, they are always going to be way more powerful at doing math than you or I, you know? Like, sure, it's great to have students um, able to to understand what math means, but really what we're trying to develop is critical thinking. And as you and I both know, like problem solving, um, critical thinking, and using like research methodology is always going to be way more important to our world than somebody that understands how to use like standard algorithm for multiplication, you know? how to do that is like, great. We, we all know we can just type it into Google and we can find out what 375 times 15 is. Uh, and you know, the big, the big tools that you're, you should always be thinking about is with math and science is how can you make it culturally responsive? Like how can you make the word problems actually matter to the students? Cause no one wants to do a word problem. That's like, Johnny has five apples. Freddie has six. How many do they have together? You know, talk it like use it use problems that come up in classroom and use the science to make it hands-on and experiential because, you know, we all know that inside the classroom, you're never going to be able to sit all day doing, not doing hands-on stuff. And a scientist, if nothing else, a scientist is doing hands-on work all the time. And yeah, there, I guess I will say that I'm going to link my lessons plans. If that's okay, Bob, I'll, I'll send them to the show notes. Um, and people can can check out the lesson plans if they're interested in looking at what I've done um, over the course of this class because I feel like there's a lot of good stuff out there for people to have. Yeah. Of course. That sounds great. Nice, Dave. Yeah, it sounds like um, overall this approach pushes the educator to, like if I'd have to say anything, like, both like get more specific closer mm-hmm. to the um the actual discipline and do it in a way that can be hands-on for the learner those would be my take-home messages yeah 
that that feels like a big piece of it. And um, yeah, I appreciate that you came out for us today, Bob, to get a little learning on, and um, yeah, sort of see what I'm what my brain is racking with every day. You know, love it. Yeah, and I'm very excited. I would also take home this idea of like, wow, you and teachers, you're really going through a lot because yeah, you have to do the day to day with the kids, but you have all this, um, like the different conceptual theoretical approaches that you're you're working with and then maybe that's the same as your school maybe it's not so you have all these meetings about this probably and so it's a lot of lot going on for every given teacher out there um and then you have to deal with all the the crises that come up in a given year so that does help a lot dave and i'm hopefully our listeners helps get a a take of what you're dealing with too. Yeah. Yeah. Sweet Bob. Um, well, I won't do all the show or all the, um, what do we call them? Coordinates? Yeah. The coordinates. Yeah. Of how to contact us, but maybe just because I was a little bit of the expert today, if you want to get in touch with me, hit me up at, uh, Dave peach tree spelled like it sounds at gmail.com. And, um, if you want to get in touch with uh, the show in any way, you can always go back and uh, listen to another episode. And every We always put the social media coordinates at the end. Good stuff, Dave. Well, it's been fun getting back in the sound studio with you. And uh, maybe this time you can let me out so I can uh, go try these things out that you uh, recommended. <laughs> always, Bob. Yeah. And... Uh, you know, the the hope and plan is to get, we have season nine ready and ready to cook out there, don't we? And uh, we do. Yeah. We're going to try and get a little more regular with it again, but um, you never know. There's always too much going on in this world. So at the very least, our commitment is to, uh, for you all to know that we're out there thinking of you. All right. Love you, Bob. Thank you. What's up, Driving Crew? Bob and Dave want to take a second to thank you for lending them your ears. They also want to thank the artists for making everything a little more beautiful. The intro song is In Heaven by Drake Stafford. Our audio is edited by the consummate and dexterous Nadir Chayetch. Web design by Chris the Mixer Sawyer. And of course, visual art is by the prolific and enigmatic Joe Shine. The outro song to season 8 is Captain Jack by Kimaru Crew. Thanks for listening. Aujourd'hui encore on chante le refrain du pirate acadien.